Hello and welcome to the Tennis Menus Daily Rolling Garage Show. Day one of quarterfinal action is well and truly beyond us now. Well, only just because it went very late in the morning for Rafa Nadal and Yannick Sinner. But it was a great day of tennis. And remember, you can limber with Lauren, our very own package run by Lauren Scopel, inspired by gymnastics-based training to help you stay injury-free, just $59.90 per year on the tennismenu.com. Val Febo here with you, and we do have a massive program lined up today with Yannick Sinner and Rafael Nadal playing an epic three-set match. It was close, but uh, Nadal just getting the hang of what to do with the young Italian at the end there. But Diego Schwartzman and Dominic Team. I said it could go five hours yesterday. It went five hours and eight minutes, and we will dissect that match in depth to see what happened and how Diego Schwartzman managed to pull off one of the wins of 2020. On the women's draw, Anjabur tried her best, and unfortunately, we couldn't get her over the line. Danielle Collins uh, getting through to this uh, her second Grand Slam quarterfinal, doing a beautiful job there. But also, Alina Svitolina, we thought she'd get through, but qualifier Nadia Podoroska we'll talk about her and what she's been able to do at this tournament and also Joel's favorite player Iga Swiatek getting through over Martina Trevisan we'll talk about her and what she's been able to do this tournament and can she actually adhere to Joel's prediction and can she go all the way she's in the semi-finals so who knows now but without these two men this show isn't what it is in the first of which is Mark Safoulis the best high performance coach in the business and look at him he just looks he's brimming with, uh, with energy today, and uh, he's ready to go. Mark Savulis, thank you for joining us. Uh, always a pleasure, Val, and what a night of tennis. I mean, I've been up watching for a long time now, and um, you did mention Limber with Lauren, and I think maybe Yannick Sinner maybe needs a little bit of work on the uh, old adductors. I think Rafa got him working a little bit more side to side than what he's used to and actually called the trainer a few times. So we'll touch on that as we go along, but um, what an epic battle, though. Diego Schwartzman and Dominic Team. I mean, that was... One for the ages and, uh, yeah, incredible match. And we'll dissect that as we go along. Yep, little guy doing big things. Joel Frucci, how are you, mate? Buenos dias, boys. Buenos dias. <laughs> what a night for the Spanish speakers, huh? <laughs> yeah, it was it was unbelievable tennis. And uh, I think looking at looking, – well, so I think we have to start with the men today. We, we absolutely have to. And what happened, Diego Schwartzman and Dominic Team Team said that um, his body was pretty much screwed after that match with Hugo Gaston and, uh, well – it started off pretty brutally with a, a tiebreak going 7-1 in the first set and Schwartzman taking that 7-6, then team winning the next two, 7-5, 7-6. Fourth set, uh, Schwartzman in a tiebreaker and then he wins the fifth, 6-2. Five hours and eight minutes and guys, look, I am I am going to say it. I did say it would go five hours. <laughs> you, you did. Just putting it out there. If you need, if you need your sidekick readings, I am here. Um, so I will, uh, I will accept, I will accept only cash payments, please. Um, <laughs> um, but no, it was, it was an amazing encounter. And I, I think the emotion on Diego Schwartzman's face at the end said it all, but, um, to fight so hard for Dominic team. And I think losing that fourth set tiebreak probably would have been the key. Um, I think he had to get through that in four. And if Schwartzman was taking that one to five, it was not going to go well for Dominic with the amount of the sheer amount of tennis that he's played over the last uh, two months. And I think with Schwartzman, he went out in the first round of the US Open, so made his trek to Europe pretty early, um, made the final in Rome, has really peaked at the right time, and he's made his first Grand Slam semifinal. But looking at some of the stats from this match, and um, I think the winning percentage on first serve for both was at 62%, but Schwartzman, for such a little guy to win 52% of his second serve points in a five-hour match, 
is pretty impressive. Team was only at 42%. Um, team only had 22 breakpoint opportunities, only converted nine of which 41%. But Schwartzman, on the other hand, 10 of 16 at 63%. Um, total points, one uh, was barely even in the kind of in the end. Uh, T- uh, Schwartzman just winning it at the end, 197 to 179. Um, but the rallies as well, Mark. I'll, I'll get you to touch on that and what um and what you thought um of the rally analysis and and go and going on from there. Yeah, it's actually very interesting. I think Gaston um, paved the way for the recipe uh, to to beat Dominic Team, and it started off. I think he hit 56 drop shots in that match against Dominic Team and had him scrambling over the court. Diego Schwartzman won uh, third or hit 13 winners off drop shots in this match. And it was at the big moments too. He was able to take Dominic team off the baseline in his comfort zone and actually bring him forward, which is what I guess Gaston was trying to do in, in that match as well. And definitely played into his, into his hands. Uh, Schwartzman played unbelievably well. He just picked the right moments to play the drop shot. And that was one of the closest matches I think I've, I've seen. I, I felt like there was times where you know, Dominic Team was down a break in the first set. He was down a break in the second set. He wins the first. And, you know, you think, okay, well, here we go. I think it's interesting to, sorry, Schwartzman won the first, but interesting to watch how the match just kept swinging. It didn't actually go in someone's favor or didn't go from like a, a, a hold, 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 hold. It was like break, break back, break the other way, break back. And it was really interesting how the momentum just kept shifting in and out. And it was, it was almost not until sort of that two-all in the fifth set where, you, where it started to break open. Schwartzman started to take real control, started to come forward a little bit more, be a bit more aggressive. You know, his, his net game was absolutely incredible. He comes forward better than a lot of players, especially if he's high. He hit 15 winners off, uh, off volleys, which is actually incredible for a guy of his height to, to sneak in and take the net the way he does is, is exceptional. And he actually gets in so close to the net that he cannot miss. And it's, it's great. He only missed three volleys. Um, out of those out of those points in terms of unforced volleys. And, you know, he's actually got a really good recipe to beat players of Dominic Team's, I guess, style of game. And, you know, he can play back, he can play forward, he can play touch, he can play deep and hard. So it's actually a great variety to play with. Now, the only thing that obviously lets him down is the serve. It's not, not the most, obviously, biggest weapon in the game, but he keeps it solid and he gets himself in the points. So, you know, great match from Schwartzman. Team... Team played incredible. I mean, for someone who was absolutely probably dead tired from, from the US Open and the previous matches, the way he played was exceptional, but just couldn't get over the line in the end. And, you know, well done to Diego Schwartzman in five hours. They're great mates, and it was great to watch them embrace it at the end. I thought that was a really nice moment. Yeah, and I think the embrace, I think what uh, Diego Schwartzman said after the match, said Dominic is one of the best players in the world right now, winning the last Grand Slam um, two times in the final here. He's my friend. I have a lot of respect for him, and that's why this match is very important for me. And you, you could see them both smiling at the end of the match. And I think team in that sense is, is such a good sport. And I think even even in the, the fact that he was up a double break, you know, sorry, a mini break in that fourth set tie break twice and was unable to capitalise. And even, you know, to go there and smile for his friend, I think uh, speaks great testament to his character, Joel. And, and I think that this, even though it is a loss and such a tough loss, I think the fact that he's been able to actually back up his US Open performance, get through a tough draw and make the quarterfinals and still go five hours playing quality tennis, I think that speaks a testament to what we're going to expect from Dominic Team in um, in the next few years because he's peaking right now. 
Yeah, absolutely. And he's really set himself up for that, not only this year, but, but the year previous as well. We've spoken a lot, uh, Val, about how last year he played just so much tennis. Um, but probably didn't really translate for him last year, but certainly has this year. And even over the lockdown period, he, he played some exhibition events that were available in Europe to start with. Um, I remember we were talking about it and he wasn't really playing his best tennis. He probably probably took him a while, uh, took him a little bit of time to really click into gear. But um, obviously we know what he's done after that um, steamroll through the US Open, um, won the, the championship there, the breakthrough that we were finally waiting for, um, and then played some really good tennis uh, at Roland Garros. So look, certainly more to come and it's great because as we know, Dominic is, is certainly one of those players that's going to make up the next the next gen, really, um, even though obviously he is, uh, you know, you know, not the latest ages of um, of his 20s, but he's 27 now. So he's at that age where he can really start to translate. I think so. And I'm, I'm excited to see what we're going to get from Dominic over the next two years. We had the we had the discussion about Grigor Dimitrov yesterday, and I think uh, team has been able to capitalize on his opportunity. And team is a better player than what, what Dimitrov is, I think. And um, I think that the way Dominic plays, I think that can translate into Grand Slam winning form. And Mark, you mentioned it's how the offense wins matches, defense wins tournaments. Team has got both. And he utilizes both in an unbelievable way that I think is, is so amazing to watch. And I think he's been involved in some of... And it's always the same players that are involved in these epic matches at Grand Slams. And you look at guys like Team... You look at guys like Vavrinka, you look at guys like Federer and Djokovic and Nadal. They're always, and Del Potro to a sense as well, they're always the ones that are looked at in, in those epic molds. You look at um, Del Potro v team at the 2017 US Open. You look at Team Nadal from the 2018 US Open. You look at Vavrinka Djokovic, those epic matches from the Australian Open. Um, you know, and Vavrinka and Tsitsipas from, the, from last year's French Open. It's always those players that have that ability to crush the ball but also have the ability to defend as well. And that's why they're so good to watch. And that's why it translates into going deep in tournaments. Yeah, absolutely right, Val. I think that um, I'm going to give you some homework today. You've given us a lot of homework the last few days and I'm going to get you back here. On. Oh, not as I say, it's do as I say, not as I do, Mark. <laughs> I, need, I need you to check this out for me because it'd be interesting to know how many times Federer, Djokovic and Nadal would have lost in a straight sets match in a Grand Slam in the last... 12, 13, 14 years. You know, to beat the, these guys who are unbelievable in defense, um, you have to go the distance. You have to play longer matches. You have to be out there for periods of time. You know, so this is where I think the separation was this morning in Nadal versus Sinner. Sinner was outstanding and scintillating in his offense, but it was the defense that made a huge, huge difference. And Nadal just made one more ball a few more times than Sinner was used to. And that, is, and that is the difference between the best and worst plays is the ability to stay in the point that little bit longer, to stay in that match a little bit longer, to push the distance. And as you saw over that match as well with Nadal and Sinner, the, the execution of Sinner's offense decreased with fatigue. Now, you know, offense can only be so good for so long. It's the ability to play both. And you said Dominic Team does that. Absolutely. He has that in spades. And I feel like he is one that is going to be able to be there for a long period of time because he can play great defensive defensive tennis, but he can play offensive. And it, it's inducive to both uh, fast and slow surfaces and he can play anywhere in the world. And, and that will stack up and his game will stack up for a long period of time. I think Yannick Sinner will get there over time. I just feel as though right at the minute, his offense is outstanding, but his physicality, uh, being a young guy, not enough pre-seasons, not enough strength in his body and endurance in his body, 
plus the ability to just hang in there a little bit longer mentally is what he's going to need to sustain that level for a period of time, like the best players. Yep, I do agree. And um, and we'll move on to that match now. And uh, Nadal was was tested. This was by far his, his biggest test. And um, I do want to get your thoughts on this, Mark, but it was 7-6-6-4-6-1 in favour of Rafa over the young 19-year-old Italian Yannick Sinner. But Sinner was up a break in the first and the second. Could have easily been up two sets to love with the way he was playing. And, and Joel put to me that it was just a, a simple lack of concentration at times um, that he couldn't just sustain um, that he couldn't just sustain, really. And that's what got Nadal over the line in those first two sets. But what I noticed this morning is that, because the match went until 2 a.m. Paris time, but that <laughs> Nadal, every time Sinner hit the ball flat, Nadal struggled to get the ball back or, or didn't get it back with the purchase that we're so used to by Rafael Nadal. But when Sinner put that slightest bit of top spin on it, Nadal was able to dictate and hit that forehand down the line and hit the backhand cross court and really start to dictate the point. Then Sinner was relying on his defense, which held up for two sets. But I think it was when Sinner was hitting the ball that was skidding low on the ground, that was when he was in the match the most and he was really aggressive. And then he started to hit a few top spin shots just towards the end of that second set. And that's what cost him. Is that is that the sentiment that you feel or... Um, was there what what else happened in that match that, that resulted in Nadal winning 6-1 in the third? Yeah, I mean, look, to, to, to beat Rafa, and it was actually interesting, I had a conversation with a player that I'm coaching that was it uh, in Europe at the moment. And we were both watching the match together. And I was on the phone this morning and I said to her that to beat Rafa, you've got to beat Rafa through his forehand. You can't beat him through his backhand. His backhand will not break down. His forehand, as much as it will be uh, the weapon in the match, it's the one that's going to break down the most and it's actually going to give you a look at the match. So, you know, he was hitting a lot of balls short in that first set. Sinner was hitting quick, as you were saying, speed to the forehand. He was going quick and hard into that forehand side, getting in behind him a few times and Nadal just kept dropping it shorter and shorter and shorter. Then, serving for that set, Nadal started to pick up his depth of the ball, started to pick up his... His court position changed. He started moving forward a little bit more, becoming more on the offense. You don't give Rafael Nadal time and space. One thing, you don't give him time and space. And Sinner in that first, probably 90% of that first set gave him nothing. But it was that little bit of uh, that door opening just a tad. That's all that Rafa needed. He started to change the court position. He started to use that time. He started to be more penetrating with his shots, started to hit more depth on the ball. He then started to move Sinner around more in the second set and Sinner started to get really sore in his adductor, um, which is a, a, a sign of lateral movement coverage. Um, and that's where the, the match changes is, is that Nadal just loves to have time and you give him that and he'll take it. So I thought it was, it was a really interesting match. And um, obviously Sinner was going aggressive in those first two balls of the rally every single time. But Nadal, to his credit, stayed in the points just a little bit longer and made Sinner make a few more errors than probably he would have normally. Yeah, and Joel, going toe-to-toe with Nadal on clay and actually defending him on clay is one thing, but to turn the defense into attack is something that Sinner did so well this morning. How many times did Sinner have an overhead? Or sorry, Nadal have an overhead and Sinner was, ended up being able to win the point. And that was what impressed me the most. And I think watching him and the commentators actually um, put a likeness to what Thomas Burdich played like um, and the way he hits the forehand, he just hits it cleanly. And the way he hits his shots, is Sinner going to, and is he more impressive than Burdich was at, at, at the age of 19? So, like, 
what what do we expect to come from from Yannick Sinner over the next few years? Because I reckon we're going to see some big things. And if they play on a hard or grass court, I think Sinner might have Rafa's measure. Yeah, he's super impressive, and um, it's interesting that you you raise grass, Val. I, I cannot wait to see Yannick Sinner play on grass. I think it's it's a surface that's really going to suit him. But he is going to be a superstar. Um, I mean, seen more than enough this Roland Garros to reaffirm that. Obviously, we had a glimpse of him when he won the the next uh, next gen finals, the inaugural next gen finals against Alex Dimonor. Um, but I mean, the players he's beaten this this tournament: David Goffin, Alex Zverev. Um, and then pushed Rafa, of course. Um, he's going to be fantastic, I think. And uh, one of the big things that um, Yannick has going for him, I think, is that he's coming in at a really good time. Obviously, um, uh, the the current uh, hierarchy of tennis is probably, you know, certainly in, in the in the of men's tennis, anyways, in the twilight. Obviously, Rafa and, and Roger, um, Novak probably still has a has a few more years left um, than those guys. But I think he's coming in at the right time. We've seen previous that there's a lot of players that have come through that uh, didn't get the, the slams that their talent probably warranted. But I think Yannick is is coming in at, at exactly the right time. And um, I just yeah, I love the flatness of of the forehand. It's it's something that can beat a, a lot of players. And as Mark said, I think that'll come with with experience. Um, you know, a bit more a bit more kilometers in in the legs. And and also, I think what's going to be really important for him is um, is just that little bit more. Uh, sort of mental fortitude. I think what what cost him um, this morning was uh, was when he um, when he dropped his serve, serving for the for the for the, uh, for the first set. I think uh, really uh, cost him, and it was an uphill battle from there. Yep, and it was kind of like echoing back to the U.S. Open semifinal last year when Matteo Berrettini took on Nadal and had those chances in the first set. Um, you know, I think he served for it, had a break, and and then had a big lead in that first set tiebreak, and Rafa was able to come back and win it. And I think that was where the match sort of ended. And you kind of like, oh my God, I've had my chance. I've gone for an hour and 10 minutes with this guy and I've come up with absolutely nothing. But that, that's where you've got to look at, oh my God, I just went 70 minutes with this guy and I'm only down by one set. Like, come on, we've, we've got this. And I think the commentators were saying that uh, Mark Woodford essentially said that what he puts a likeness to is he, it, and what he's liked about Cinder this tournament isn't his strokes, it's his mentality. And I think this is something, Mark, that you've spoken about for the US Open show and this Roland Garros show, that mindfulness and having that strong mentality is going to win you matches as much as your shots are. And that's what he's had throughout this tournament. He's beaten quality opponents, like as Joel said, Zverev and Goffin. So, and the way that he played against Nadal, he was unflustered that he lost that first set. There was no, uh, there was no emotion. He just got on with the job, got up a break in the second and created those chances again. Yeah, I guess for for an Italian, because I'm half Italian, I can probably say this. Um, he's he's very calm for an Italian, right? So, um, you know, I, I mean, coming speaking from experience and my family in particular, we can get a little bit hot headed. And he's definitely on the opposite side of the spectrum. He's calm, he's controlled, and he basically just nothing flusters him. Like he seems to be just like cruising. Like he, he played a great point to break Nadal um, and go up. I think it was six five in the first set. And he literally was just like, nothing happened. Like, he just walked across the net. I thought, man, give me something. Like, you know, get, get yourself going after that. It's kind of a, a time where the adrenaline's got to be got to be going and you've got to take that advantage. And, yeah, he's, he's got a, a great mindset, good head on his shoulders. But, yeah, as we said, and I think Joel said before, like, physically, he needs a few more Ks in the legs and a bit more, a bit more strength um, and be able to play a few more of those longer matches and get some experience going 
serving for a, for a set or serving for the match against the big players. And, you know, he, he hasn't had too many opportunities to play him for a long period of time. So I think over the next 12 months, we're going to see a Jacob Sinner that he's going to be top five in the world. I think he's, he's incredible. He's got every weapon possible. Um, just needs to get the defensive side a little bit better and tidy up a few loose ends. But he's, uh, he's a player to watch in the next 10 years. Yep, agree and concur 100%. I don't think that uh, anybody can uh, can go against what you said there because it is it, it looks as though it's going to be a massive fact. And uh, I hope we can see the best of him because what we've seen so far is already stunning uh, tennis. So Rafa v. Schwartzman in the semifinal and who knows what will happen uh, after Schwartzman beat Rafa in Rome. But I, I have a feeling though the tide will turn. Guys, do you guys both will give just a one-word answer? Will that uh, Will that result change from Rome? No. Yes. So you've got Schwartzman beating Nadal. Yep. Ooh, okay. It's very exciting. Oh, um, I'm only doing it because I knew everyone would go for Rafa. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, I think no. Look, I, I do. I think I think he's a big chance. I, I think the way he's playing, I think um, the confidence he would have gained from from beating Rafa last week um, is is something that. You know, I think he's going to utilise. I think he's, he's got a bit of a recipe um, to be able to beat him. And I think he's playing some good tennis. I, I think he's a really good chance. Yep. And the guy is uh, an Argentinian energizer battery. Um, so I reckon, I think we're going to see some, I reckon we're going to see a very, very long encounter there like we have in some of their previous matches. But we'll move on to the women's draw as well. And Anja Burr and Danielle Collins took to the court for the final fourth round match last night after they were pushed back uh, a day. And well, look, Joel, Joel and I, we both said last night that Collins was screaming unnecessarily loud during that match and halfway between points. It was, and look, I know Mark, we have this discussion at the U S open that you do teach the grunting, but when you start screaming halfway through a point, it doesn't seem like it's a, it doesn't seem like it's a tactical thing. Like it's, it's more gamesmanship rather than anything, but Joel talk, talk me through your thoughts first on what you thought of the actual loudness of the screams and what was going on. Cause it seemed as though it was really inappropriate. Well, I'll say straight away, I think there were probably more decibels in that match than fans. Um, but, oh, geez, it was a, it was a, a strange match to watch. Um, there were a few, a few webs and flows in it. Um, look, I'll tell you what, though, Danielle Collins, the, the power that she brings is something that's a real weapon. And it's, obviously, it's not the, not the first time um, that we've seen it. It was an interesting match, though. Both players had their periods to start off with. Um, I don't know, Ons Jabeur looked a, a little bit off. She tried to throw in a couple of drop shots, but they just didn't quite work. They they started to eventually, but I remember there was um, there was one that didn't even reach the net, and I was thinking, oh, maybe it's it's not quite her day. But look, she found a way back, but, you know, fair play to Danielle Collins. Uh, in the end, um, she she got it done. And, um, you know, that, that power against Sophia Cannon, it's going to be interesting. It's, it could could uh, could be a bit of a, a bit of a slog off in, in some some respects. But yeah, the, I mean, in terms of the, the noise... Um, I mean, what, what what can you really say? I mean, we were talking about it when the match was going on. Val, um, is there really any any action they can they can take with it? Yeah, you can't because even though you can kind of tell that some of some of the time when she's screaming halfway through a point, and it seemed like a more scream than a grunt, um, but it came out of nowhere. And although you can kind of tell that it it doesn't seem right, um, it, it, how can you prove that? And that, and that's where it, it it comes into fact. But she did get through six four four six six four. Mark, I'd love to get your thoughts on it and and what you thought of the match. And and um, Jabur played really well to finish off the second set and to come back from a breakdown and force the decider. But 
um, as Joel said, the, the power that Collins possesses is, uh, it, it's unbelievable because she doesn't have the biggest frame, but gee, she can club the ball. Yeah, she can. She obviously can pop the ball really well. And that's probably where you saw Andre Bohr trying to, to create some different kind of looks with the drop shot. I mean, she, she's hit, um, she's missed seven or hit seven unforced errors off the drop shot itself, um, hit six winners. So she, she's obviously had a bit of a plan in mind that she couldn't go with Collins in the power stakes for the whole match, but needed to utilize her strengths. And her strengths are variety. Um, you know, it's definitely not movement. So she wants to move uh, her opponent before her opponent moves her. And that was obviously probably the thinking behind it. Um, we'd love to touch base with Shane Leonard, who I think we may have on the show tomorrow. I think he's uh, he's primed to bring us some some new new data from what, what's been happening this week, which is great. But, you know, you're not wrong. I mean, just looking at Colin's stats and having a look at she's hit 12 winners, but she's hit 21 forcing errors. And that, that to me is the huge or the best part of her game is the ability to pop the ball so big that she forces you into error. And that's, that's a huge, a huge thing from a player of, of, uh, of her ability and her stature. Cause I think she's not, as you said, she's not huge, but you know, what she does pack is a good punch on her ball. And, uh, and she did that. And yeah, I mean, great tournament for both players. I mean, on the ball, great tournament for clay being her worst surface in terms of result wise in the past. Um, and Danielle Collins doing a great job, obviously. Playing now, fellow countrywoman uh, Sophia Cannon, which will be very interesting. Very exciting matchup there, but we'll park that uh, side of the draw for the moment. And Alina Svitolina against Nadia Podoroska last night. Podoroska getting through 6 2, 6 4, and there was really nothing else to say. She was just too good. She'll move from 131 in the world to number 48, and she's only the third qualifier in history to get through to the semis at a Grand Slam and the, um, and the third um, in general to do. Uh, Sorry, the first to do it at Roland Garros. Sorry, I'm getting my stats muddled up there. But first to do it ever at Roland Garros. It is so impressive what the young Argentine has uh, done. And I think it might only be her second or her. I think it's her first Grand Slam main draw since 2016. So, Joel, talk us through this match. And, and Svitolina, the highest ranked player left in the draw, this was her chance to win a slam. And again, I'll ask this question to you. She's, she's still young, but can she win one? Yeah, look, I think Alina can still win one because I think she's still what time? She's 26, um, so she's still at a, at a pretty good age. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I think she's an interesting one because whenever I watch her, I just I just think, does she have the weapons to go on and win one? She can hit a hard ball, but can she can she do it enough? I think is is the big question with her, but. What was what was a real problem for Alina Svitolina last night was that she only won a third of, of points on her first serve, which um, if you're only winning that many points on your first serve, you're, you're not going to win too many matches. So, yeah, that, that was a huge problem. But, um, I mean, it, Nadia Podoroska, what more can you say about about the the story behind it? Even just, just watching the match and listening to the commentary, you could you could just – you could feel – the, the happiness of, of the moment. It was it was so great to see a qualifier uh, come through that. And I guess in the in the grandest scheme of, of the year, not only in tennis, but just just in the in the, like what, what what 2020 has been has been so much um, you, you know so so much hardship um, to see someone like Nadia Podoroska go through qualifying at Roland Garros and make a, a semifinal, I think is uh, just a, a story that that proves to everyone that you know, there is, there is maybe something to pull out of the ashes. 
Yeah, I think so. And like, she's not in bad form in September this year. So last month she won the Open de Saint-Malo in France on clay, um, which is a ITF uh, event for the women. But she's, look, this, this result is quite simply magnificent. She has played one, as I said, one Grand Slam main draw. That was at the 2016 US Open. She was 19 years old and she lost in the first round to Anna Quebec. She's lost since then. 2017, three qualifying events, 2019, two qualifying events, and has missed one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine slams uh, out, of, out of those. So to come through in her second Grand Slam main draw, she never won a Grand Slam match to come through qualifying, which she'd also never done. And then to, to it's just simply, simply unbelievable. And I'm so impressed with what we've seen from her to show absolutely no signs of wiltering against um against someone i oh, know she has come through qualifying before she did it at the us open but um yeah to do that against alina svitolina is quite simply unbelievable so look i'm excited to see what we can see from her no qualifier has ever gotten through to a final of a grand slam and if we can see that happen here well then 2020 is just providing narrative after narrative after narrative and fingers crossed we do see that because uh, it would be so 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 exciting but um looking at the other match joel your favorite Iga Swiatek got through over martina trevisan another qualifier um six three six one and mark the way that she's playing is joel right can she do it oh absolutely she can i mean there's there's no doubt that the way she's playing um you know especially on the surface now and the way that the conditions are playing there's no doubt that she's definitely a great chance. I mean, I watched the match this morning. Um, when you don't sleep at all, you get to watch a lot of tennis. And I think that's been the positives of me not sleeping. But um, I thought Trevison was unbelievable in that first set. She was 3-1 up. She was dominating the court. Um, Spiontek could not do a thing. She couldn't. She was pushed back. She was in danger. 3-1. And then it just went bang, 6-3 within a, a short space of time. And the way that Spiontek can create angles, that, that to me, and I said this in, the, in our show the other day, was she's able to hit these spots that not many girls can. She, she hits around the outside of the ball. She creates really good width. Um, and against players, especially like Trevison, who really struggles to move, um, that to me is important because the girls these days are big hitters, but they're not great movers. And Clay also doesn't help movement. So if you can get them out of their strike zone, you can take away their time. You can get them into defense rather than being an offense. It's a great opportunity for her. And, and she did that today in spades. But um, I know we talked the other day about um, the way she played in terms of coming to the net. She was able to have variety in her game. Today, she just played it purely from the back of the court. I thought it was interesting to watch how she could just mold her game style from one player to the next and play in so totally different ways, but still execute really well. And that's a sign of a, an exceptionally good player. And I do feel that, She's one to beat. She's playing exceptional tennis. And, you know, I, I hope for Joel's sake she gets through. Yeah, well, one, <laughs> me too, Mark. Me too. <laughs> one sidekick this morning, and we could have one for the whole tournament with you, Joel. So, um, yeah, you called it You called it pretty early. And you said even before she played Simona Hallett that she was um, going to trouble her. So we'll see what happens for the rest of the tournament. But, uh, Mark, just before we do go, because I do – and before we run through tonight's matches, I want to ask you, because I completely forgot to do it yesterday – I heard the commentators say that the drop shot is being played commonly on the third shot of each rally. Why is that? Because they've probably got more time. So um, it basically would come after usually a serve and then a return comes in, might be a, a struggled return and you've got time and the player's being pushed back or pushed wide. You maybe then have a bit of space. So 
it's predominantly at that time at the moment it's playing out that way but it's generally when you have a little bit more time on the ball you have some options and you push your opponent behind the court or, or with and giving yourself some sort of space to work with so um, you never want to play a drop shot when the other player is in control because then they've got court position on you and they'll get to that drop shot quite easily. So it's generally when you are in control of the point, you'll generally use that drop shot. Okay. Absolutely love the analysis by Mark Zavallis. That is why he is hashtag better than Moritoglu. <laughs> He's never leaving that room again. I've pumped up his head so much over this past month and a half that, um, yeah, I'm surprised. <laughs> how that is. It is rock hard with a big brain. Uh, Mark Sifoulis, thank you very much. But we'll get to our thank yous properly after I go through tonight's show. Uh, tonight's matchups, Petra Kvitova over uh, against Laura Siegerman um, in the first match on Chatrier. Danielle Collins in action again against Sophia Kennan, uh, the fourth seed there. What will happen? I have absolutely no clue in that match. Andre Rublev against Stefan Tsitsipas, another one that could go very, very long. They played an epic in Hamburg last week. And then Novak Djokovic against Pablo Carreño Busta, the rematch. Will he hit a linesman? Is Laura Clark going to be there? I don't know. I hope she is just taunting and taunting. <laughs> um, it would be very funny. But look, I'm really looking forward to tonight's matchups. And remember, you can head to the tennismenu.com for the Limba with Lauren package, our very own package run by Lauren Scopel, inspired by gymnastics based training to keep you injury free. Just $59.90. I need that for my hips because I've somehow got bursitis in there from not stretching enough. So, um, yeah, not happy with that, but uh, I will be using Limba with Lauren because that is absolutely fantastic. Uh, fantastic. It's a fantastic product. So, brilliant stuff there. Mark Sifoulis, thank you very much for your efforts on the show today. And I'm going to practice some drop shots for you. Great. And that limbo with Lauren is really important for a lot of players. There was a comment on the, on the TV this morning that Yannick Sinner didn't start taking tennis anywhere near serious until 13. He did a range of sports before that. He created the athletic ability to be able to play this sport. And that's what this sport needs is athletic development from a young age. So the limbo with Lauren package is, is critical to keep your body in shape, to get some good balance in your body, to have the flexibility and mobility to create the right positions for your strokes. So that really helps your coach to be able to mold your stroke production. So check it out. Uh, Lauren's got some amazing stuff on there. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Mark. And Joel Fridgey, always a pleasure with you, mate. Yep. Good stuff, boys. See you tomorrow. You didn't say gracias. Oh, yeah. Gracias. <laughs> there you go. And I will do my homework for you tomorrow, Mark. But remember that uh, it's been a great show today. You can follow us at The Tennis Menu on Twitter and Instagram and The Tennis Menu on Facebook and LinkedIn. We are there. You can subscribe to us as well on Spotify because and Apple Podcasts because we are there and these shows are going up on uh, on audio form. Remember, if you want to comment on our socials and ask us a question um, when we do post the videos or on YouTube, please do because we want to answer all of them on the show as well. So remember, Val Febo, Mark Sifoulis, Joel Frucci here joining you every day throughout Roland Garros. It's going to be a big night of tennis again tonight.